This is the Dialogue Journal podcast series. Hello and welcome to the Dialogue podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, chair of the board of directors of Dialogue Foundation. And today I'm pleased to have as my guest, Professor Sarah Berenger Gordon of the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Sally, as she is sometimes called, is a recognized and highly regarded scholar on the law of church and state. And in particular, she's published widely on Mormon topics. Even though she is not a member of uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, she has made her mark in Mormon scholarship. So much so that she is slated to be the opening speaker at the Mormon History Association conference coming up in early June in Layton, Utah. A little more about Sally. Her first book, The Mormon Question, Polygamy and Constitutional Conflict in 19th Century America, won the Mormon History Association's and the Utah Historical Society's Best Book Awards in 2003. She has a kind of an academic pedigree that I think we would all covet, She graduated with a B.A. from Vassar, a J.D. from Yale, an M.A.R. in Religious Ethics from Yale, and a Ph.D. in History from Princeton. But despite all of these professional accomplishments, she is a very down-to-earth and engaging person. Now, our podcast today has a bit of a different format than earlier ones. I had hoped to be able to interview Sally while she was out here but her schedule just wouldn't permit uh, a separate get-together. But she graciously agreed to permit us to record the presentation she gave at the Miller-Eccles Study Group meeting. So that's what this podcast will consist of, uh, along with the questions and answers during the Q&A session. Sally's topic was the, the legalization of Utah for statehood. And I think you'll find it quite interesting. So without further ado, here's Sally's presentation. It is such a pleasure um, to be here among old friends like Jan um, and talking for one of the few times in front of... One of my husband Dan. Usually, we're talking over over the breakfast table, right? So, um, and I'm especially grateful to be here at um, Miller Eccles and to have had such a lovely dinner tonight at Mimi's Cafe. I'd never heard of it before, but I gather there is this is this is a well-known place, and I I intend to go back. Um, I am talking uh, tonight, and I hope there's not too much anti-lawyer sentiment in uh, <laughs> Yeah, people are laughing. Okay, well. How many lawyers do we have here, by the way? Honor, honor among thieves. All right, good. Um, I will be um, guilty of egregious lumping, um, which among historians means putting things together that, if dealt with in more detail, would look more complicated. So, so if you want to split as I'm lumping, um, uh, please understand. I, I get it. I'm going to be skating along here this evening. Um, and forgive me if I talk to some people about stuff they already know um, in the assumption that not everybody knows. Uh, uh, and just as, as P.G. Woodhouse used to say when he was introducing, you know, the 125th Bertie Wooster novel, he'd say, you know, sleep through the next five pages if you already know this, as he was <laughs> introducing it. So I'll understand if you sleep for five minutes if I'm talking about what you already know. My topic tonight I'm calling by what I hope is a provocative title, which is the legalization of Utah for statehood. And and it behooves me to point out um, that at the national level, just to give you a sense of the dominance of lawyers, 26 out of 44 presidents have been lawyers and 45% of the sitting Congress is currently 
lawyers. And, and I sort of think about lawyers like others think about Congress people, which is we, we all hate Congress, but individual politicians uh, we often find far more interesting. So, so I, I will hope that at the end of the day you think that law and maybe even lawyers are more interesting, if not more lovable, by the end <laughs> of this talk. Um, and I want to begin um, uh, by invoking war. Um, the, the great uh, military theorist Klaus, uh, Klaus von Clausewitz, Klaus von Clausewitz, yes, uh, said that war is politics by other means. And, and I want to start by saying that law is also politics by other means. Um, and we can extend the metaphor, honestly, to say that lawyers think of themselves as strategists, as tacticians, and they're not ashamed of it, and they battle through courts and legal arguments to accomplish what are often political objectives. So let me just say my, my talk this evening uh, on the history of law and lawyers uh, begins with the Latter-day Saints founding period and then continues through their migration westward and then on to statehood. It focuses on the ways lawyers functioned in Mormon experience in, in New York, Missouri, and Illinois, and then in territorial Utah, not only as prosecutors and judges, but also as a defense bar, as a precursor to statehood. In the end, the development of a talented, and I mean talented, legal community made a difference to the history of the territory and the church that made the Great Basin its home. Lawyers affected Mormon Utah mostly through law and legal action, not war and pillage. But they made politics nonetheless. For one thing, lawyers dominated the settlement negotiations that eventually led to statehood for Utah, and then they settled in comfortably to run the state. So there are four sections to my talk this evening. The first focuses on Joseph Smith and some of his encounters with an often hostile and sometimes friendly legal system. After Smith's martyrdom, Mormons constructed a society virtually without professional attorneys. This second section, the second period, focuses on how and why that came about and what the consequences were. The third section focuses especially on the 1870s and the change in approach that brought lawyers in the picture, both in Utah and representing the church in Washington, uh, uh, not only opposing but representing church interests. The final section reflects on the effects of this new legal community, which included Mormons as well as non-Mormons. In the end, Utah in 1896, when it was formally admitted as a state, looked a lot like other states. That is, lawyers in Utah had become central to politics and government there as elsewhere in America. So what I'm trying to do is to qualify the standard Americanization of Utah for statehood story that we've seen in works of historians in the field. Instead, I think the story's more complicated. Lawyers initially weren't welcome in America. Their craft was widely condemned among Mormons for distorting the truth and sowing conflict among the saints. Eventually, lawyers were key to the negotiations that brought resolution to the long and painful contest over polygamy and Mormon claims to self-governance in Utah. In that sense, Mormons were right. Lawyers were dangerous to Zion, whether they were Mormon or not. They helped undo the most, un, the most controversial tissues of difference that separated Mormons from Gentiles. So this is a story of the legalization of Utah for statehood, a, a refinement, if you will, of the older Americanization thesis. So, so let me begin with Joseph Smith's Legal World, Section 1. Um, as uh, many people here know, during his short life, 
Joseph was involved in many legal conflicts, um, including well over 200 lawsuits, whether as a defendant, a witness, or a plaintiff. He also presided over courts and government, particularly as mayor of Nauvoo, an office that included the responsibilities of justice of the peace and presiding judge of the municipal court of Nauvoo. So this, this talk tonight treats just a few cases that provide some background for Smith's legal world and for the way that secular law and lawyers affected the early church. Ultimately, the legal system did more than just harass the prophet. It betrayed him and led to his death at the hands of a mob in 1844. But for almost 20 years before his martyrdom, Smith received a series of tough lessons in the power of law and legal action. Among the most important early cases was a complaint brought against him, which claimed that he had agreed to locate a long-lost Spanish silver mine on the banks of the Susquehanna River in my home state of Pennsylvania by, by using certain stones which he could, quote, discern things invisible to the natural eye. The nephew of uh, the treasure seeker who'd hired Smith charged that, that Joseph had defrauded his gullible uncle. A local newspaper also reported that Smith had been tried as a disorderly person and was known as a glass looker pretending to discover hidden treasures. Smith's seer stones were recognized tools among the many diviners and cunning folk who sought hidden truths of the spirit as well as of the earth. Joseph himself took the witness stand at trial. He readily admitted that he had a stone that could reveal hidden treasure in the bowels of the earth, but denied making a profession as a diviner. The man who hired him was also vigorous in Joseph's defense. He was certain that Joseph wasn't a pretender. He had powers to to divine. The defendant and the man who hired him, in other words, challenged the complaint on the grounds that there was no pretending about him. He was a true seer. The outcome of the trial was not included in the records, and scholars disagree about what actually happened. From a modern legal perspective, the nephew, who had not been harmed as far as we know, would not have had standing to complain that his uncle had been defrauded. Other charges of disorderly conduct against Smith were brought after publication of the Golden Bible and the organization of the church in 1830. This time, the complaints tended to be that he had caused an uproar by preaching the Book of Mormon or by claiming angelic visitations, uh, all in an effort, so it was said, to get money from those who came to hear him. Smith, in one trial, was uh, acquitted after a two-day process, but was immediately rearrested and now charged with casting out a devil, only to be acquitted once more. In both of these trials, Smith was represented by legal counsel, and, and in both cases, these were farmers who claimed to have a good knowledge of law. So it's not so much professional. Charges of fraud followed the prophet to Ohio, where in 1837 he and other Mormon leaders established a rogue bank after their request to create a legal one had been denied by the state legislature. And I've now found in many state statutes, especially uh, uh, along the borderland between North and South, uh, explicit statutes prohibiting religious societies from forming banks. So apparently there was more than one, and I, I think it bears looking into at any rate, um, uh, uh, the notes that, um, uh, that the Kirtland Safety Society Anti-Banking Company uh, issued were by definition fraudulent and, of course, it turns out uh, worthless uh, uh, because the Panic of 1837 engulfed this as well as other banks. Smith was charged criminally and sued for debt in civil court. Of 10 judgments against him, three were satisfied in full, three in part, and four not at all. Smith complained that vexatious and malicious lawsuits uh, 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 had been brought against him, but 
his reputation had been tarnished, um, not only by non-Mormons, uh, but by some of his own followers. His opponents came to believe that he regarded himself as above and not bound by law. And we have the expert on the Boggs extradition hearings uh, in, in, in the audience here today in, in Morris Thurston, so I won't go through that um, uh, in much detail, except to say that when uh, uh, Smith was uh, arrested and charged with treason, um, uh, uh, in, uh, in in Missouri um, uh, in 1837, it probably would have been credible to charge him uh, maybe even with inciting larceny or receiving stolen goods, but he had never taken part in any violence, and the indictment and arrest itself became a subject of considerable scandal around the country, so that when he escaped, many Missouri officials were relieved. But he did, he was a jailbreaker. In the, in the, in the New Mormon, so he had many experiences with law. In, in the New Mormon city of Nauvoo, Smith received a, a, a charter from the state legislature that granted uh, the city substantial rights of self-government. As I mentioned before, Smith served as mayor, justice of the peace, and presiding judge uh, of the municipal court. But when Boggs was attacked and shot um, uh, in 1842, he was convinced uh, that Smith had orchestrated the attempted assassination. Uh, and uh, Missouri issued an extradition order for Smith, who then went into hiding uh, uh, until a new Missouri governor assured everyone that he did not want to stoke uh, the controversy. Um, and Smith surrendered to federal officials in 1842. The district court judge in that case held that the, the extradition order was invalid, not on the merits, but because it did not allege that Smith had committed a crime in Missouri. And once again, uh, 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 the uh, claim outside the faith was that Joseph had ducked through legal loopholes uh, and rankled his enemies, as one put it. Um, the fact that he also had many outstanding debts at the time and tried to declare personal bankruptcy also added to the sense that Smith manipulated uh, uh, the legal system to his own advantage at the expense of others. Over the succeeding months, Smith's growing political, religious, and, and even military power exacerbated the sense that he saw himself as above the law, um, and his platform for president in 1844 reflected his growing dislike of the profession after long experience as a defendant in legal proceedings. What he said was, quote, like the good Samaritan, send every lawyer as soon as he repents and obeys the ordinances of heaven to preach the gospel to the destitute without purse or script. <laughs> the most dangerous phase of this debate over law arose within the Mormon community itself when a group of Nauvoo residents became openly critical of the prophet early in 1844 they charged him with uh, a personal and political immorality, especially surrounding polygamy, and planned to start a newspaper. The situation devolved into a series of lawsuits and criminal complaints against the dissenters, including, just tossing in the kitchen sink, assault, perjury, gambling, insulting city officials, and resisting arrest. <laughs> Despite all this, the Nauvoo Expositor was finally published in early June. Smith called it a greater nuisance than a dead carcass. And of course, a nuisance has a particular meaning in law. It's more than an annoyance. It's an illegal act by one property holder uh, against others. And sure enough, the city council obligingly enacted an order giving the mayor the power to suppress dangerous nuisances, and Smith ordered the Nauvoo Marshal to destroy the press and burn all copies of the offending publication. 
As one legal history put it, the destruction of the Nauvoo Expositor was the death knell for the legal sanctuary the Mormons had created in Nauvoo. And some scholars have defended Smith's right to abate, as it's called, suppress a nuisance. Uh, 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 But the uproar among non-Mormons in areas surrounding Nauvoo drew on the American legacy of freedom of speech and the press. The outcry was so virulent that the Illinois governor doubted his ability to control the state militia if Smith did not surrender. And Smith, who first went into hiding across the border, eventually turned himself in when his wife wrote to him that the entire population of the city of Nauvoo was in danger of being attacked. And in turn, the Illinois governor assured Joseph that he would guarantee his safety. But of course, the governor left a local anti-militia, anti-Mormon militia in charge of the jail. And within hours, a group of men stormed the small structure murdered Joseph and his brother Hiram Smith, and wounded one other man. The subsequent investigation resulted in indictments against nine men, of whom five stood trial, and all were acquitted. Mormon witnesses so distrusted the legal system in general, and Carthage in particular, that they went into hiding to avoid subpoenas. This time, instead of escalating the violence into civil war, the saints retreated far away, taking themselves into the wild vastness of the frontier. When Joseph had gone into hiding in late June 1844, he and his brother planned to escape to the Great Basin in the Rocky Mountains. And of course, that's where Brigham Young led the saints westward uh, uh, to the refuge that Smith had already chosen. There in the Great Basin, lawyers were not part of the picture. And here I get to my second section, order without lawyers. The Latter-day Saints shared their dislike of lawyers with many other Americans then and now, but in Utah they took anti-lawyerism to new heights and often mixed in disdain for significant parts of the American legal system as a whole, including the common law. Brigham Young's distrust of lawyers is important to this story, as is his eventual and reluctant encouragement of a profession that he had long despised. This is a tale of order without lawyers, I call it, drawing drawing an analogy to the work of legal theorists who argue that it is possible to have well-functioning communities without the presence of formal law. In other words, they argue that the rule of law is often a hindrance to communities that develop effective self-governance. In many senses, they argue that life would be better without lawyers. Actually, perish the thought, (laughs) But Brigham Young would have agreed with these scholars. And indeed, the order without law movement draws unconsciously on utopian ideas that Young shared with other religious leaders in the early 19th century. Building on the opening claim about the relationship between law and, and politics and war that I started this, this uh, talk with, John Humphrey Noyes, leader of the Oneida Perfectionists, uh, uh, another utopian community, put it this way. He said, I assume that we hate lawsuits as we hate war. Brigham Young was deeply opposed to litigation in some of the same ways. He said that lawsuits open a wide door for the admission of every unclean spirit. In other words, going to secular law marked a spiritual failure that threatened the community. Among the first acts of the Utah Territorial Legislature was the passage of a statute that included prohibition of actions that would collect lawyers' fees. In other words, you weren't you, you could pretend to be a lawyer, but you couldn't get paid. <laughs> this provision actually echoed a 17th century Massachusetts statute, but went far beyond what the New England Puritans had done. Local Utah courts were forbidden to cite legal precedent or apply the common law. In particular, legal technicalities were to be avoided at all costs. Remember, Joseph got off on the legal technicality, right? Um, Any representative 
found not to have pursued the truth of the matter uh, uh, in his legal work for a client was subject to disbarment, a fine of $100, and imprisonment. Even then, Mormons were encouraged in the strongest terms not to use these courts, but to bring their disputes to the local bishop, who would resolve the disagreement or send the parties on to the ecclesiastical courts, a, a, a ghost court system run by the church that handled the nuts and bolts of much internal dispute resolution throughout the territorial period and even beyond in some cases. Litigation between Mormons and non-Mormons was handled by those local probate courts whose jurisdiction was extensive. Usually we think of probate courts as handling things like estates and trusts and adoption, Uh, uh, but in uh, Utah, the legislature granted probate courts the power to hear all criminal as well as civil cases, Uh, and uh, uh, probate judges were elected to four-year terms. In many cases that I've found, the local bishop and judge of the ecclesiastical court was also the probate judge. These courts, last but not least, drew up jury lists for federal as well as territorial courts. Mormon control, then, of judges, juries, and lawyers, not surprisingly, led non-Mormons to conclude that they could not hope for justice in Utah's probate courts. They complained that, yet again, Mormons evaded law by which other Americans were bound. In particular, federal legislation designed to extend the civil law to Utah was frustrated by Mormon claims to self-government in the territory. For example, selection of all juries through the probate courts guaranteed that no jury, even those impaneled in the federal courts for the territory, no jury would enforce anti-polygamy laws. So federal judges, as well as other non-Mormons in the territory, complained complained loud and long about the futility of of attempting to enforce federal laws. By the late 1860s, even federal judges acknowledged that the 1862 statute outlawing polygamy was a dead letter in Utah. Mormons replied that they viewed the law as unconstitutional, so that lack of enforcement was just evidence of the law's fundamental invalidity rather than their own lawlessness. (laughs) And for 20 years, the saints had the best of this argument. And some scholars have claimed that the law dealt by the probate courts was rough, but also roughly fair. Lawyers, I have to say, were always passionately opposed to this system. These included ambitious young men like Robert Baskin, who came to Utah during or after the Civil War, hoping to build lucrative careers in mining law after the discovery of silver. Instead, they found themselves a despised micro-minority within a larger and embattled non-Mormon community in Utah in the 1860s. Even more important, Territorial officials were hired by the federal government and charged with governing Utah, and they found themselves frozen out. Their livelihoods depended on persuading Washington that they and legal process, rather than the army and politics by other means, this this legal process was the best way to recover Utah from religious fanatics, as they would put it. These federal officials stoked conflict over Mormon polygamy and other departures from law and practice of the rest of the country and broadcast their claims back to Washington, and you begin to get a circle flowing very quickly. The order without lawyers that Mormons had hoped to create looked more and more to the outside world like a society badly gone wrong. Something had to give. Here's my third section, which I call lawyering up. (laughs) Gradually, it became evident to Mormon leaders that defense of Zion required legal expertise. The president of the church himself finally recognized that many of his difficulties were legal. By the early 1870s, Brigham Young had been arrested, sued for alimony by an estranged plural wife, 
His adopted son, John D. Lee, had been excommunicated and was under investigation for his part in the Mountain Meadows Massacre and the jurisdiction of the probate courts and their powers to control jury selection had finally been sharply reduced. These setbacks occurred just as Young himself lost some of his edge to old age. His opposition to lawyers had long deterred young Mormon men from pursuing careers in the law. But now he began to relent. In the early 1850s, Young said openly, we have no use for lawyers whose study led them to forsake the gospel. But by the mid-1870s, Young quietly called on talented young men to enter the legal profession so that they could defend the kingdom against God, against those who would undermine it by the deployment of a hostile legal system. The career of Franklin Richards illustrates the potential and perils created by Young's conclusion that a coterie of loyal Mormon lawyers were needed to defend saints in court. Richards recalled 60 years later in his memoir that Young took him aside as a very young man and advised him to study law so that he could represent Latter-day Saints when they were attacked by the legal weapons of those outside the faith. After he read law alone, as he put it, you wonder what he had, Blackstone probably, Mm -hmm. Richards was admitted to the bar in 1874. He was the first fresh Mormon face among a growing non-Mormon legal community. Richards served as general counsel to the church for 30 years and was perennial co-counsels on briefs to the United States Supreme Court, backing up whichever high-profile lawyer had been hired to argue the case in Washington. His firm defended prominent Mormons accused of crimes related to polygamy, both at trial and on appeal. He apparently was retained by the church to appear for these defendants, which, if true, created an interesting conflict of interest. The church opposed promises by church members to obey anti-polygamy laws in return for light or suspended sentences, but individual defendants may well, we have examples of them, may well have wished to avoid prison terms by making such promises. Also, Richards himself never took a plural wife. Instead, he quietly but consistently opposed continuation of polygamy, a practice that clearly deterred the development of the territory and prevented its admission to the Union as a state. Young was so, excuse me, Richards, excuse me, was so successful at mediating between Mormons and federal officials that he eventually became the law partner of a former federal prosecutor. Other Mormon lawyers followed similar professional paths. Gradually, these young lawyers built an articulate and successful defense bar. They did polygamy defense work and also handled the long and bitter litigation surrounding the estate of Brigham Young. Several young lawyers took leading roles in creating the influential Democratic Club of Utah, in 1884. Among them were Richards and others names, uh, others whose names appeared frequently as defense counsel in the flood of polygamy prosecutions that dominated the life of the territory by the mid-1880s. The club's initial platform included this statement, we firmly repudiate the idea that any citizen is under obligation to take his political counsel from those whose avowed purpose is a continued violation of law. This by the general counsel of the church. That is, this organization that included leading young Mormon lawyers departed sharply from the admonition that polygamy must be defended at all costs. Final section, I promise. I'm calling it the settlement. Ironically, the prominence of young Mormon lawyers within their profession was achieved through defending in court a practice that they eschewed in their private lives. Like the trained professionals they were, Richards and their 
Richards and other Mormon co-counsel crafted plausible legal arguments in defense of their clients. They had some impressive wins, forcing prosecutors and judges to craft new and far less devastating methods and legal strategies. Yet all of the lawyers in this story did well, Mormon as well as non-Mormon. The legalization of Utah was swift and successful. Utah went from a territory where lawyers' influence was banned in 1850 to a place in which lawyers called many of the shots, all in the space of about 35 years, a generation. In his study of the territorial Southwest, the historian Howard Lamar remarked on generational differences in Utah in the late 1880s. He argued that the Latter-day Saints, who had begun in the 1830s with youthful and physically powerful men at the helm, were now governed by wise but old men. Wilford Woodruff was 82 when he became church president in 1889. George Q. Cannon was 20 years younger and far more modern than Woodruff. But it was the next generation with promising lawyers such as Franklin Richards, uh, uh, these men who were 40-somethings in the 1880s, who ushered in the age of professional specialization. Lamar, Howard Lamar's focus on change across generations can be extended to the way that the legal profession marked the men of this third generation as thinkers and actors in Utah. Lawyers managed the settlement, the reconciliation in the territory, helping craft a workable framework for government in the early 1890s. What they eventually settled on was a draft constitution that closely tracked the structure of government in other states. The pattern <coughs> is a familiar one to students of American history. The historian John Murren studied late colonial Massachusetts and found a roughly parallel track for legal culture there and for the culture of legalism, with its embrace of formality of argument and procedure, clearly defined standards and precedents, and so on. When the Constitutional Convention convened in Salt Lake City in 1894 to draft the document that would admit Utah into the Union as a state, our lawyers were there. There, these leading members of the Mormon Defense Bar met with former prosecutors and judges who had sent Mormon polygamists to jail and excluded all Mormon men from jury pools. Together, they buried their ideological and religious uh, differences that had been so divisive. As a group with a shared vocabulary and shared goals, these men figured prominently at the convention. They resolved the fundamental question that had so dominated Utah history, ending the battle that had created bench and bar and that had first brought lawyers to power. They concluded that polygamy would forever be a felony in Utah. And here's my conclusion. Lawyers and the legal profession were the beneficiaries of the long and bitter anti-polygamy campaign but there were also clear losers. As is so often the case in criminal trials, the purported victim of polygamy gradually faded from view. The actors in polygamy prosecutions, both on, on the defense and prosecuting, were exclusively male. It was men who accused, tried, and defended other men. <coughs> And I do not by any means want to minimize the suffering of Mormon men who were sent to prison for living their religion. But the battle against polygamy had begun under the banner of women's place in a democratic society, women's interest in monogamy, the respect for women that was essential to, essential to an American state, and so on. And it was defended in the early days on many of the same grounds, on the superiority of polygamy and its capacity to assure a husband for every woman, on motherhood, and on the duties of men to wives. The prosecutions of the late 1870s through the early 1890s exposed women to law, not only because their husbands were incarcerated. Women were called upon to be witnesses in countless, many hundreds of cases, 
They struggled to be loyal and faithful, yet also to tell the truth. Often they failed to manage these contradictory mandates. Dozens of women were prosecuted for perjury. Hundreds more perjured themselves out of desperation. Almost 200 women were also prosecuted for fornication, a crime typically reserved for prostitutes and the odd serving girl who got pregnant on the job. In territorial Utah, women who were understood in their communities as upstanding and chaste faced such charges. They have been left out of the historical scholarship and even from most contemporary accounts, an oversight that no doubt reflects the shame of the fornicator label at the time, but that should not be replicated through historians' focus on men alone. When Wilford Woodruff's manifesto appeared in 1890, it was one product of a group of feverish negotiations between Mormon leaders and members of the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee, which at that point was considering a bill that would have disfranchised all Mormons and abolished the territorial legislature. But even as Congress debated the most draconian action yet for Utah, there were signs in the territory itself that the war of laws was all but over. The manifesto came as no surprise to Franklin Richards, or even, it seems, to leading federal judges and other legal officials who had prosecuted uh, polygamists, but were just as eager as others to resolve the standoff. All were poised to take advantage of the phenomenal growth that the end of the war would bring. The development of the territory had been slowed by concentration on the one great issue. Richards soon made the motion that officially dissolved the Mormon People's Party. He then joined other young lawyers in the Democratic Party. As the professional history of lawyers put it in the early 20th century, quote, the field of brilliant achievements in the arenas offered by law had now captured local sons of Utah, as well as drawing ambitious young lawyers from outside the faith. There, they worked to rationalize and organize a familiar form of government, and then settled in to run the new state of Utah after its admission in 1896. Quietly but unstoppably, lawyers assumed their traditional dominance, a process that completed the legalization of Utah. That was great, Sally. We're going to have questions as we usually do. I'm going to exercise my prerogative here, and maybe this is a question you don't know the answer to, but in the early part of the church, we did have some practicing lawyers who were involved at the highest levels. Actually, all of our cadre became a practicing lawyer. I'm wondering, after this period of sort of no lawyers, do you know who the first uh, lawyers were that kind of became apostles? We've got a lot of them today. Oh, became apostles. Yeah. Hmm. Now, this Franklin Richards, he was not Franklin D. Richards that I think we think of. He's He's probably probably his father. But do you know of an apostle that was in a... That's a great question. I mean, of course, Dallin Oaks... uh, well, springs to mind, but it's hardly... There's, uh, there's many today. Yeah, so so I'm thinking of the earliest, there was Aurelius Minor and Zerubbabel Snow were the two kind of workhorse guys who were, who were tolerated um, uh, when needed, but not talented. You know, these were not reliably skilled legal minds. Um, one of them actually went to jail for unlawful cohabitation and was disbarred as a result, although his his own memoir doesn't mention the, the fact. And I, <laughs> I, I I didn't really talk about them so much because they, they didn't, they sort of fit into an order without lawyer's system rather than sort of making a difference. Um, but no, in terms of apostles, I don't know the answer. Does anyone? Joe. Maybe you could talk a little about Albert Carrington, who's uh, oh. Ivy League uh, educated at Dartmouth. Yeah. I'm not sure he was a full-time lawyer ever, 
And he was instrumental, I think, in drafting the first constitution in Utah, very uh, yeah. trusted by Brigham Young. Right, uh, right, right, right. So, I mean, it's an interesting um, overlap, the, the question of professionalism. Um, and, and as you see, I was working um, very much in a professional mode here, and Dartmouth has never trained lawyers. <laughs> However, one of the things you, you see is that, for example, the, the farmers who knew law and defended Joseph Smith, you, you get a sense that a, a sort of well-rounded man read law but didn't really practice it. Um, um, uh, the, uh, I had a great-grandfather who apparently got a medical de degree and never practiced because he thought it was beneath him. I still, I can't believe that. Um, uh, but you, you switch. Um, one thing you see is a sort of a, a regime in which everybody was understood to know a little bit and could turn as an amateur to apply their talent as a favor to a friend or to help with some drafting. But did not invest themselves professionally um, uh, as lawyers. So, so uh, uh, um, a gentleman could read law and and um, appear on behalf of friends, but not be considered a lawyer, which would really, honestly, be an insult. Especially if you called him an attorney, which was a nasty insult for a very long time. Um, and 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 so, if you see a lawyer shrink when you call them an attorney, you know they they. They follow that. Um, uh, 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 but then you begin to see the idea that um, a gentleman could finally become a lawyer, and to do so needed specialized training and deep commitment to understanding a very complex system. So yes, this is really a professionalization story as well. Good, good point. Yes, far back and then closer. How's that? By the bay window, the beautiful view. Yeah, soft seats. Um, <laughs> my question is about the, it's the Edmonds-Tucker Act, is that what Yes. What, what role, if any, um, did these early young attorneys play in the, the, the creation and the passing of the Edmonds-Tucker Act? Were they present when it was being debated in Congress? It's a great question. The, the, we're talking about the, the 1887 statute that both disfranchised all women in Utah, we were talking about this early this evening, directed the Attorney General of the United States to begin forfeiture proceedings against, uh, against the church for all property owned in excess of a value of 50000 uh, dollars in, in total value, um, uh, and various other and sundry. Um, the, the Edmonds-Tucker Act was a hard-fought, um, hard-fought uh, uh, piece of legislation. It had, in its essence, been introduced several times before and had never passed. Part of the the argument had been, well, why why don't we try enforcing the laws we have on sort of like gun control, right? Why don't we try enforcing the laws we have on the books now, and that'll take care of the problem. And and instead, what you got was the underground with with the entire top leadership of the church in hiding. Oh, you know, there's this whole system um, of telegraphs, you know, where you. I guess Nero or Herod stood for, you know, the marshal is coming into town. This, uh, uh, and, and, you know, people hiding in hayricks and, and so on. Um, uh, so you had this, this massive resistance, uh, massive and usually nonviolent, but not always on either side. I mean, there's one woman who beat up a deputy with a broomstick, I gather. Um, and, ouch. Uh, but, but generally, you know, there wasn't, um, uh, 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 you know, illegal guns were not usually at issue. Um, and so one of the things that happened was, first of all, that everyone started getting really mad at Mormon women. This is, uh, the Edmonds-Tucker Act also introduced the crime of fornication. And, and as I mentioned, more than 200 women were indicted. Um, as fornicators. So people started getting furious at Mormon women and they were all disfranchised and hundreds were, were indicted uh, uh, for, as, as fornicators and also as perjurers. 
um, uh, because they, you know, predictably, I don't know, the, 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 uh, uh, the prosecutor would say, do you have any children? And, they, and, and there'd be some little kid there. And they'd say, how old's that youngest one? And always it'd be four. At least three, right? So the statute of limitations would have run. Um, uh, so, so, you know, you can see the, right? You can see the problem for these women. Um, you either send your husband to jail or you tell a lie that looks excusable, but you have sworn to tell the truth. And so you've perjured. It's, it's very, very difficult. Um, so the Edmunds Tucker Act was, to some extent, born out of frustration with this very expensive and unpopular legal campaign not going away. And it was expensive. And you can read all these letters back and forth in the Justice Department about how much it was costing uh, uh, because, uh, because it, it, it was you know, really a very, very expensive territory to administer, as you can imagine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so the Edmunds-Tucker Act um, was opposed by a reliable coterie of Southern Democrats, um, many of whom were very good lawyers. I'm thinking of George Graham Vest, among others. Um, uh, James Over... Uh, overhead is the wrong word. Over something. Um, uh, uh, also a really good lawyer in the Senate opposing, making very strong arguments that, for example, the, the, the forfeiture of church property was itself the taking of vested property and, and, and was illegal. And there's, that's, there's a pretty darn good argument to that effect. So it was hard fought um, and by no means unexplored in legal terms um, uh, but honestly, the frustration with Utah Territory was very deep, and people wanted to get it over with and fast. Yes. Uh, yes, I was hoping you oh, could yes. expand, brief, uh, expand on our quick comments before the meeting. Of, uh, in Brigham Young's quest and the Flattery Saints quest to gain statehood, uh, the issue of slavery and how, you know, passing the Act for Service in 1852, but how did that whole thing become, you know, Utah choosing to advocate to become a slave state as part of their quest for slavery. Or statehood. Uh, for, I'm sorry. Yeah. And then also the effects that that had. Yeah, that's a great question about um, the role of slavery in um, strategic maneuvering to gain statehood following the compromise of 1850, the compromise of 1850 that was so very polarizing. Um, we were. We were talking about this uh, before, and thank you for raising the question. One of the things you see, especially among territorial governments, is a desperation to get out from under the foot, the heel, whatever it is, of the national government, which is cutting those checks, right, to pay the salary of the governor, but also constantly a thorn in the side of local populations. Um, and you see in this as other situations that political gain is made from ugly stuff. Mormons had been attacked as abolitionists, right, in, in Missouri and, and across the Midwest. They were deeply distrusted because they were viewed as anti-slavery. Then in Utah, really where they, where they uh, 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 were uh, given the opportunity to ally themselves with what looked like the winning party. After all, the South had controlled the country since its founding, right? I mean, 1852, they still looked really strong. The minute that eroded and Lincoln was elected, well, bloody war was on our hands. So you can, you can see why a clever strategist would say, well, if you got your wagon, you might want to hitch it to the Southern Star. They were growing fast. I think 40 cents of every dollar was earned uh, through Southern agricultural exports up to 1860. I mean, it's really a powerhouse. Um, and they're willing to make a deal. Right, the, the Southern Democrats were willing to make a deal because they were so worried that action against polygamy was the precursor to action against slavery. And they turned out to be right. I mean, 1862, the Moral Anti-Bigamy Act, 
And within two months, Lincoln announces that he wants to emancipate slaves in the in the uh, secessionist states at the first available opportunity. They were hand in glove. So you can see how you kind of get for not forced. You can see why with the opportunity, someone could argue, well, you, would do, you will win statehood and independence far more quickly if you ally with the South. But it's not a very pretty picture. Okay, you mentioned that that had actually retarded the uh, approval of statehood. Allying with the South? Oh, you bet. <laughs> oh, you bet. In fact, um, uh, the lawyer in... Uh, was with the Union in the Civil War. Yeah, but they were writing to England and negotiating with the South. It wasn't, you know, not reliably. That's why Lincoln said... But, but so many jurisdictions weren't reliable. I don't, I don't want to pretend this is the only one. Um, but but the first case, uh, the Reynolds case, um, where they hired uh, George Biddle from my law school, Biddle Law Library, we still use it, he argued the case on the basis of Dred Scott. He said, you can't, yeah, I mean, and I was stunned. 1878 for three days, he's arguing Dred Scott. I thought, how could that be stupider? But of course, I didn't realize Lots of lawyers were arguing. I, all you have to do is go read the congressional record. There's tons and tons of references to Dred Scott. One aspect of Dred Scott had been overturned. The rest was good law. And it was relied on uh, by states' rights activists throughout the 19th century. And I just reread the chapter of Charles Warren's um, the Supreme Court in United States history, published in 1923. He has a whole chapter on Dred Scott, and in 1923, he still thought the case was rightly decided. For the non-lawyers here, you might want to just say... Oh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Good point, Mars. Dred Scott was a lawsuit brought... uh, uh, It's called Dred Scott. It's really... The name of the case is Scott against Sanford, uh, decided in 1857 by a deeply divided... Um, uh, Supreme Court. Um, the majority opinion was written by Chief Justice Roger Brooke Tawney of Maryland, uh, uh, and he uh, held that Scott's claim that he had been emancipated by being taken to the non-slave jurisdiction of Wisconsin um, uh, could not have happened uh, because he could not be a citizen of any portion of the United States, including uh, uh, Wisconsin, um, uh, because no person of African heritage was a part of the body politic that had created the United States in the first place. Um, and, and this was a divisive opinion. Um, uh, it was, Tawney really thought he was going to make the problem of slavery go away, apparently, by just making it go everywhere. Instead, it, um, it unleashed... Um, incredible destructive forces, including um, uh, the claim that polygamy and slavery um, had traveled together and Brigham Young's own rebelliousness um, was evidence of of what southern states themselves would do, provoking the first Utah War, um, uh, and and to some extent um, responsible for the Mountain Meadows Massacre that that, uh, Rob Briggs has written so much about and, and others in the room know so much about and that my dear friend Jan Ships and I have been working on. So there's a deep, deep connection between um, the presence of um, slavery and pro-slavery uh, uh, advocates and um, uh, polygamy and, and defenders of polygamy. Now, concerning the slavery issue... Oh, oh yeah. Slavery again. Republicans... Radical Republicans mm-hmm. had it out for the twin relics of barbarism, as they called it. Of course they did. And slavery. Yes. So there was a natural affinity between the Southern Democrats and the Utah oh. Mormons. They were both the objects of the Radical Republicans. They had an alliance the before the Republicans. Yeah, no, but but the the Southern Democrats. And and some Latter Day Saints had an alliance before the re- the development of the Republican Party. Well, there was some so, converts that came to 
Utah. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about politics, right? So, so the the idea that the um, the Republican Party would pick on polygamy and slavery together was to try to tarnish slavery by being associated with polygamy. But you're aware that they had that as their. Of two course, main they did. Well, I don't know if those were their two main goals, but well, but it was certainly of part of their the platform. Civil War put it on hold with Lincoln in office, and then afterwards, Grant and and those thereafter. They well, I wouldn't I wouldn't so much say it was on hold when they enact a statute in 1862. Well, 62, young Lincoln signed yeah, that. Yeah. Actually, they said Grant treated them better than Lincoln did. <laughs> but they didn't trust the North. Well, yeah. Because of how they were being treated by the United States up till then. Mm-hmm. And so the South, who was looking good at the beginning, might have been the winner. And of course, it turned out the way it did. It did. Yeah. It did. Very good point. Yes. I'm wondering if you have followed any of the legal proceedings that um, modern Mormon fundamentalist polygamists mm. have had to go through, and if you. If there's any significant highlight, or if there's any significant similarities or differences um, between what you know, contemporary fundamentalist polygamists right. go through and early Mormon polygamists. Right. The question is really: Are there similarities in the legal situations today of fundamentalist um, breakaway groups that practice? Plural marriage um, uh, and uh, the situation of, um, say, uh, uh, Mormon polygamists in the 1880s, when the when the you know the full cry of the hunt um, was after them. Um, I would say yes and no in response to that. <laughs> in response to that question. Um, there is, there have been some smaller jurisdictions that have been dominated uh, 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 by these groups, um, and they have worked some some pretty intensive control over their own members. And there has been some pretty horrific behavior and some defrauding of government. Um, so, to to some extent, that you know, the messy side um, uh, is all there. The, the difference, really, I think, between the uh, late 19th century and the late 20th and early 21st century um, is that th- these f- fundamentalists, if you want to call them that, um, don't really have power outside their immediate communities. They're not, um, they are not in public, <coughs> they are not governors of Utah, right? They're, um, if they're tyrants, they're village tyrants. Um, uh, they're, they're small and contained. Um, they also uh, uh, tend to be very much unlike, um, unlike 19th century polygamists, um, opposed to education, for example, um, uh, uh, deeply, deeply um, isolated, um, uh, and there were, there, there was a way to think about Utah as isolated and isolating, uh, uh, but it was constantly welcoming new people, hungry for new people, um, and, and a bit, um, a bit cavalier about what new people would bring. They were supposed to fit in rather than change the society. But, of course, they wind up changing the society, too. Um, uh, And you have um, also a, you know, it's hard to call it a truly functioning system after only three generations or so. Uh, But there began to be um, senses of, of uh, if you study, for example, inheritance patterns and so on, you began to develop a greater sense of equity among wives over time. And also, here's the other thing, a declining participation in the practice. Really, really noticeable, especially across the uh, uh, across the later periods, it's it's in periods of great stress that this kind of jumps up. In the 1880s, you just don't see those spikes, even though it's a period of great stress again. So you you, you really have a genuine decline across time. 
And I've been looking, I've been looking for those Mormon banditti. Mm -hmm. There there were claims that there was these gangs of young Mormon men by a couple of outsiders. Um, and so I've been looking for like the functional equivalent of the Lost Boys. I think they were, I think they were all in the gold fields. If there were yeah. such, yeah. And, um, uh, but but you don't quite see the same degree of, uh, of pushing off, and and that's in part because it's so much bigger a society with lots of people flowing in all the time. They were active in in Nauvoo. The, the banditti, yeah, yeah. You don't see that so much in the bigger. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm just talking about the second half of the 19th century, but you're absolutely right. We have one last question. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh oh. I think it's generally considered the church Carl does Bader. not finally extinguish polygamy within its ranks until the 1930s under J. Reuben Clark and, uh, and others. Yeah. Can you tell us uh, what. Uh, what legal tools, if any, they use to, uh, to help uh, uh, extinguish uh, polygamy? Excommunication is a great way to get rid of polygamists. So nobody's being prosecuted in, in uh, state courts? Or they actually, this is a great question about whether, um, whether polygamy was prosecuted, or, or, or really we could, we could call uh, sex crimes more broadly prosecuted in, uh, in early 20th century, or we could even say the late 1890s. Uh, um, you, I do find some, yes. Um, it tends not to be exclusively Mormon, but then the raid wasn't exclusively punishing Mormons either. We've, Kathy Danes and I have dug up some really interesting stuff. Um, uh, so the garden variety bigamist was also around in Utah as everywhere else. I mean, uh, bigamy was a very common crime in the 19th century, especially by you know, I mean, my husband Dan would say, well, I'm going out to Washington State and I'll send for you when I get some land and you'd never hear from him again. <laughs> and he'd show up, you know, with his new wife. You bad boy, don't you even think of it. <laughs> so so, so uh, a bigamy was very common and Utah was not immune. Um, I can remember one guy who was who was brought up in front of the judge and was being yelled at for being a polygamist. And he said, no, sir, I'm just a fornicator because I can't help it. (laughs) 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 On that elevated note. (laughs) Well, again, thank you so much, Sally. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. You've been listening to the Dialogue Journal podcast series. We'd like to thank our guests today. For more Dialogue podcasts or to comment on this one, please visit DialogueJournal.com. Thank you.